0: The domestication of the computer already has begun. In Phoenix, Arizona, the Charles Crosshaw family has learned to live with a computer terminal in their kitchen. Welcome to the 17th and probably final episode of Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago food and restaurant podcast by me, Michael Gebbert. Aw, why is that? I'll tell you in a minute. But hey, it's not the end of the world. In fact, we'll go out with a bang, not a whimper. First up, we meet a farmer, Harry Carr of Mint Creek Farm, who farms in a town that was founded to wait for the end of the world. And now he's trying to prevent another one by the way he farms. If you're a chef, a tough critic is the worst person in the world to you. We'll talk to a candidate for that position, my friend Ken Zuckerberg, whose blog has a not-safe-for-work name you might just come away with a little more appreciation for tough love. And let's go out on a high note, which means by talking barbecue with Joe Woodle of Husky Hog Barbecue. That's all on airwaves full of bacon, not going gently into a night that smells like pork. (laughs) So what's this about this being the last episode? Well, when I started it, it was because there wasn't anything like it in Chicago food media. And because I was recording a lot of interviews, and only using so much of them in print stories. So it seemed natural to create something that would allow those interviewees more room to talk in depth, not just a couple of pull quotes. Also, I've always liked playing with audio, that whole theater of the mind thing. How do you convey what it's like to eat a piece of silky smooth salmon in audio alone? Go back and listen to episode 13 if you want to know my answer. One reason I did it too was because I knew people had tried to sell the idea of a food show to our local public radio station for years, and the station's former director had told at least one writer that he didn't think food could work on the radio. So, when I started, I had no reason to expect any competition from that direction, ever. Instead, within weeks of my starting doing airwaves full of bacon, that station manager was out. WBEZ launched a food podcast with my friends Louisa Chu and Monica Eng. And Steve Dolinsky and Rick Bayless started their own podcast, The Feed. Now, neither of those does exactly what I've been doing, but there's no doubt looking at the numbers that Chicago suddenly having a bunch of food podcasts cut into the numbers for mine. Besides, I have a tendency to keep topping myself by making things more and more elaborate and complicated. What was meant to be a relatively easy way to recycle interviews kept turning into very time-consuming, complex productions about hunting frogs or making cheese. And unlike those other podcasts, this was a one-man show. I'm proud of the quality of what I did. I think it went way beyond the conventions of radio and did something pretty unique. The things I write do better and better at reaching an audience. More page views, more Facebook shares. But Airwave's audience has been slowly getting smaller and smaller. It's not to say that I'd never do anything in audio again, but maybe an hour-long podcast isn't the only format. In fact, Maybe it's a mistake in the internet age to think of things being so siloed into text, audio, video. Maybe the better way to share interesting audio is in the same place as you're writing about something. In fact, the first story in this episode is an expanded version of a story I did for the Reader's People issue last November, where text, photos, audio, and video all coexisted and did very well together. Anyway, this was fun to do, I know some people really enjoyed it, and it's all experience to put to use on the next thing. So thanks for listening, there's still plenty of past episodes to catch if you haven't already, and now, on with the show. over the farmlands of the Kankakee plain. One little community is easy to spot as a square patch of green with concentric rings of streets at one corner. It may not be coincidence that you can recognize the unincorporated town of Stell from the air. It was founded by a man who wrote a book about the wisdom he'd gained from ancient Egyptians traveling in UFOs. In the late 1960s, Richard Keeninger led his followers here to build a self-sufficient community to survive the apocalypse. The UFO part of Stell faded with the 1970s. Today it's just a little bedroom community out in the countryside. But one man who went there as a teenager looking for answers is still trying to forestall what he sees as an apocalypse. One brought on by farming practices that depend on chemicals and erode topsoil. If you've eaten lamb in upscale Chicago restaurants, or shopped at the Green City Market, you've probably seen the name Mint Creek Farm. And one day last fall, my son Liam and I went down to Stell to meet the owner of Mint Creek Farm, Harry Carr. The story begins by fixing lunch. Let
1: me see if we got anything that's quick here. I
0: was gone all day yesterday doing turkey processing, so I don't know what we
1: might add here. So you grew up in New Jersey? I did. Yeah. I uh, my dad was an electrician and my mom, uh, she was a you know kind of the old time stay at home mom, but she also like was trained as a nurse and uh, when we got older she uh, did. Um, They called it homemakers at the time, but it's like in-house hospice care kind of thing for people. My mom, um, interestingly, had subscribed to organic gardening and farming back in the 60s. I remember reading it as a kid. I just exposed it on that level. And I can remember, um, um, you know, my dad would... You know, he would fertilize the lawn with the Scott's lawn fertilizer, you know, we'd walk around, (laughs) you know, kind of thing. And then we'd get this stuff from the local Agway farm store that you put on the garden that causes things to grow. And, you know, as a little kid, it's like, okay, what is that stuff? I think that psychologically for people in fertilizer, there's always this tendency to do the, the, if, if some is good, more is better problem. <laughs> and that's another issue that we have in terms of nitrates in the waterways and, you know, it manifests in all kinds of algae blooms and all sorts of things, you know.
0: So how did you get from New Jersey to here?
1: I had read about the community and the philosophy behind Stell by the original book that the founder of the place wrote called The Ultimate Frontier. I, When I was 16 years old, I picked that up off my sister's bookshelf, read it nonstop and was really turned on to a lot of the ideas. So I came out here to just network with the people here and see what trouble I could get into. And I kind of got stuck. <laughs> Once you end up with a business and customers, the idea of moving to some place that might be a little bit more scenic or, you know, got more cool things going on. It's like, mm, you know, it's was like, you know, so that's kind of what trapped me here.
0: So what was it like in the seventies?
1: Here? Yeah. Well, agriculturally, it was about the same, corn and beans. You know, it wasn't a whole lot different that way. Stell, I mean, the founder and group of people that came down, I think they were in Rogers Park initially, uh, moved down here in, I think it was like right around 1970, 71. Uh, Pulled money, built homes, and and they built the factory that we're in over there and um, had a woodworking shop in there. When I moved out in 1976, I had been trained in tool and die making. I went to work for a plastics company that a Stell member had started. And then when interest rates hit um, 20 some percent, it just really had some devastating effects on the economy. Anybody had a variable rate loan was you know, not in good shape. And both the woodworking company and the plastics business suffered from that and never really quite recovered. I was able to borrow some funds from my family and uh, get a little tool and die shop going, which actually went quite well. And within a couple of years, we had like 10 employees and I was doing work, you know, for a variety of people, both up in Chicago and down in, you know, the rural areas here. So when, when uh, things were going gangbusters and we had all this manufacturing business going on, um, I was riding my mountain bike back and forth to work at the other facility where my office was. And that was like five miles each way. And I kept getting sprayed by, you know, these big agricultural rigs and everything. And it kind of brought me back to my time as a kid in organic gardening and just feeling like, hey, there's another way that we can do this. And, um, you know, you can talk to your blue in the face, but people aren't going to change. You have to kind of set some examples and try to come up with something that people can can check out and see and so forth. So I I thought that the idea of creating a model, uh, alternative farm in this uh, sea of corn and beans would be a way to try to effect change. And here we are, you know, 20 some years later, still struggling, you know.
0: It's a bitter, blustery day. So we pile into Harry Carr's car and drive to the pasture where his cattle are grazing
1: this is our angus herd um i there was a guy down in southern illinois that was certified organic and uh, he had a fencing business is how i got to know him and um, he was always on the road fencing and you know the wife got tired of taking care of the cows while i was gone (laughs) was like i'm in trouble man would you buy me out you know so i ended up buying out his uh and that got got us into like in one swell foop into some nice uh, organic beef so these are uh, grass-fed 100% grass-fed beef so we raise them out on pasture Uh, we try to err on the side of diversity in the pasture when we started uh, with this corn and bean field we plowed it up and uh, smoothed it out and uh, planted you know about uh, you know eight or ten different species of uh, plants unfortunately at the time you know i was kind of in the conventional mode of european and asian species things like alfalfa and red clover and white clover and or orchard grass is another one that and those are all of, feed those are all grasses that grow in the pasture but they're not native species and the problem is that the the, uh, the native species that evolved in this bio region support a lot more than just these uh, charismatic megafauna we could call them <laughs> um you know there's a lot of um, uh, songbirds that eat off the insects and the insects are very specific to, ver- to certain plants and those plants typically are, are native prairie plants so me coming along and plowing all this ground up and then planting European spe- species is not the answer you know it's better I mean we don't get the erosion so is all perennial ground it, it hasn't been plowed up since we bought it in 2003 and um so it's had 10 11 years of uh you know, the roots uh, going deep and holding the topsoil and we've cut down the erosion, but people don't realize how bad erosion is as a long-term problem. think, oh, I'm only losing 1% of my ground a year. Well, in hundred years, you've lost it all. And that's basically in the last hundred years, we've lost half of our topsoil. So um, there's places on this farm that were almost completely eroded of topsoil when we bought it. So it takes some time to get it back. The way topsoil is formed, is um, when the grass grows as above so below so you see the gro- growth of grass vertically down below the roots are, are, are going down um, mirroring the way that the root the uh, um, above ground part of the plants are going up well when the cow comes along or sheep or whatever is grazing and eats that grass off and kills the the or, or um, eats the top of the grass um, the roots mirror that, and a lot of the roots uh, die off because the top of the plant um, just got consumed. And, and the, that growth and decay of roots is how the organic matter of the soil is formed. By, by doing what you see over here, you, you lose your topsoil and it's the end of civilization. We think we're doing really great with this 200 bushel corn, and what we're doing is we're ending civilization because the topsoil erodes away to the point where it's gone. I mean, I was raised Baptist and, uh, the things that never, you know, the cosmology as promulgated by conventional fundamentalist Christianity just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, you know, and, uh, I'd get into these long arguments with my mom, you know, she, she was like the big one on, you know, you're saved by grace. And then I'd pull out like in James, like, you know, by your works, ye shall know them and, and, uh. You know, the, the, you know, there's this kind of dichotomy in the Christian belief structures, I see it. It's like, does it make a difference what you do? You know, and if you're just saved by grace, it really doesn't make a difference what you do. You know, the fundamental problem right now that I see with Christianity is it hasn't been a good steward of the planet. If you look at the, the Western civilization and what we've done to the earth, you know, it's the kind of an underlying basis of that that's caused that is this idea of um, dominion. Man has dominion. God gave man dominion over the planet. In other words, God gave man the ability to screw up the planet and live in its Shit. You know. So who
0: has who owns the corn
1: patch over there? Uh this this right here is owned, um, I think, by a bank. And, and uh, just there's a local guy that farms it, and then I think there's a farm manager that kind of gets in between the two of them. But, uh,
0: yeah. So what is it about growing that over there, the monoculture of corn, that's harmful versus growing a bunch of things, more or less?
1: Well, num- number one, you know, nature abhors... monoculture you know it's like nature's all about polyculture is all about diversity and when you kill everything which is our method here with the monoculture first first thing you do is you kill everything okay and then you start you know it's like man's um a big head you know okay man's better than man's better than god man's better than nature we're gonna first kill everything that nature did start from ground zero and, and then we're gonna give the soil everything it needs with our chemicals. Your problem with this, th- that this solves, is harvest. You can design one machine to harvest corn, okay, a combine to harvest corn, and you can grow a monoculture and harvest it. Okay, the problem with diversity in polycultures is how do you harvest it? And that's where the whole system of animals and agriculture comes in, because those cows do a very good job where the combine completely fails in the polyculture you know so you have to have a monoculture to have equipment like a combine to harvest it so when they start and they kill everything in the ground and they plow it up and then they plant their monoculture seeds they have the problem of nature wants to come in and add diversity well that's called weeds to the monocultural farmer what's a weed to me if the animal can eat it it's not a weed we're gonna go uh... On the south side of the property, there we'll see the uh, the laying hens, where we've got our egg-laying chickens and our uh, our pigs. And then um, down at the other farm, we've got more uh, more sheep and goats. And the goats are, are worth the worth the trip uh, in and of themselves because they're they're very uh, photogenic and love to come <laughs> up and uh, jump on top of you. So we. Uh, uh, bought our first farm in 1992 and uh, uh, I had a friend that gave me some some they were raising 4-H lambs and they gave me uh, uh, ten of their culls. and a cull is an animal that they determine hey they don't want to continue their genetics and want to get rid of them so they cull them out of the flock and um, so I got ten problems to start my sheep education with and So I like to say that I didn't choose sheep sheep chose me because it really was the truth I didn't know what I was doing and okay. Now. I'm a sheep farmer. All right, whatever, you know (laughs) Hey, while we're here i'm gonna just shoot on up and kind of show an extreme example of um, What i'm talking about with erosion when we bought this this particular property in 2003 um You know I was working with um smoothing out the ruts from the corn and beans and and uh, trying to get some grasses and legumes going and um, I thought it odd that you see these these are old Osage orange fence posts along the fence line there and I was thinking it odd that why did they berm up the fence line and put the fence posts on it I mean why wouldn't they just put the fence posts on the ground and I realized they didn't berm up the fence line, the ground around the fence eroded. So that fence was probably put up, uh, you know, sometime in, in the mid-1900s. And uh, what you have seen in terms of this uh, amount of erosion and reduction of the land is uh, the topsoil that has been lost. So, it has to be like
0: three feet, probably, four yes, feet even? Yes. It's funny it looks like a little uh, traveling carnival over there or something. Yeah, yeah, what
1: we've done is uh um we've kind of taken the idea of the kind of stoga uh covered wagon, you know, type of thing <laughs> and taken an offshoot of that. But uh we take a hay rack. I mean, we pretty much made all these things. We take like a hay rack, like a wagon gear and then we build a, essentially a house on top of it and we've gone through what you see here is about 10 years worth of different generations, but we keep selling out of eggs. Eggs are really hard to keep up with and uh, um, you know the the um, uh, chickens are wonderful out on the pasture in terms of all the insects and bugs and so forth they can eat. That's another kind of I think benefit to going more in the range of diversity because you encourage the insect population and the birds that you raise on out on the pasture can eat a lot of those insects and get their protein we really struggle for what I call the hunt for protein. Um, The um, uh, protein is um, uh, certainly a necessary ingredient in in the growth of um, animals and and our development as well. And um, insects are very high in protein. So uh, it's like nature's uh, way of supplying protein for us you know, the more that we can encourage the growth of insects, the very thing that the monoculture farmers are spraying insecticides to kill the insects, we're we're doing the reverse. We're trying to encourage insect life and then harvest those insects with animals such as chickens. As outrageous as this sounds, I want to feed eggs to pigs. Hmm. Eggs are really high in protein and uh, very good um, uh, uh, protein spectrum, different different amounts of um, uh, different kinds of protein and, um, you know, different amino acids and so forth. So um, the uh, pigs love eggs. Well, chickens are relatively cheap to get started and good harvesters of insects. So my combine is the chicken for the insects. I'm combining insects with chickens and then ultimately wanting to feed the uh, excess eggs that will produce to the pigs to get the amount of protein that the pigs need. I'm not there yet because I keep selling out of eggs at the farmers say, market. I don't think <laughs> so. The when pigs you can, get, can afford
0: farmers market eggs, <laughs> no. When
1: you when you when you can get six dollars a dozen for eggs, you know it's like why why would you feed them to the pigs? So that's the problem. I just have to like um, increase the chicken population by a factor of maybe ten or something. And I'll have <laughs> some extra eggs. There are people that suggest that the humans are going to be, you know, we're going to be able to feed the planet with insects. That's what's, that's what our future is: eating insects. Well, I like eggs.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm happy to have those insects pass through a chicken yeah. on the way. Exactly. Yeah. You got to pet him like a dog. I'm cold, though. Oh, sorry.
1: Over here, we've got a mixture of uh, billy goats and uh, ram lambs Trying to keep the guys isolated so they're not chasing the females all over the place when they get big and ornery Because we don't we don't castrate them. So they're like intact
0: um, And How does that affect? what do you do with the goats you sell them for meat
1: yeah that's pretty much what we do with everything i mean it's all basically um you know we're we're providing people that eat meat in the city with meat. there's a tremendous wealth of fertility by utilizing livestock that a farm that does not have animals on it are missing and in that sense i have seen you know since we took on this ground In the the 21 years that we've been farming it, I have seen a huge explosion of, you know, prolific growth both in the plants and the animals by practicing these things. Um, This particular field, uh, because it was a little bit difficult to get to and I had to cross the creek, I just kind of left it alone for a number of years, left it fallow, and it did almost nothing. It was awful. I saw an example of this. We were up at Morton Arboretum. They're, they're one of the oldest restored prairies in Illinois it is the Schulenberg Prairie at Morton Arboretum. Go there, walk around. Come here, walk around. It'll blow your mind. The lack of primary productivity on that old restored prairie, there's there's nothing bringing the fertility to the ground. There's no buffalo on it. You know, There's no elk on it. There's no deer on it. And because of that, there's no productivity. It looks like it's dwarf. All the plants look like they're dwarfed because the ground was eroded. It lacked fertility and it's just not going to come back on its own if you don't do something. You know, they're not big on putting a bunch of fertilizers on it. God bless them. I'm glad they don't. But it was like very depressing to see it for me, you know, because it's like, hey, this doesn't have to be this way. This could be a, a restored prairie with great productivity if they would figure out a way to bring some animals. I was actually I was thinking about approaching somebody over there and say, hey, you need to get some animals out here. You know, I could bring some sheep over, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fertilize that prairie for you. You know, I don't. I'm not going to do that with buffalo. I mean, right. <laughs> I, I don't think I could get insurance on that. Right. You know? <laughs>
0: So as always, there will be links to the things talked about in this episode, like the reader story with lots of pictures of Harry Carr's farm. That's all in the show post at com. Now, moving right along, let's hear from the worst person in the world. Pop Beloved has been spending the weekend going over his case for the backstages against the worst person in the world and Mary and Harry have invited him to stay over until the court trial begins in some weeks. When the theater critic John Simon panned the Broadway debut of the legendary radio comedians Bob and Ray, they dubbed him the worst person in the world and created a character of that name supposedly based on him. Worst Person in the World sums up how a lot of people probably feel toward critics when they're on the receiving end. And if anybody has probably earned the name in Chicago food, it's my friend Ken Zuckerberg, whose blog was given its not-safe-for-work name, it rhymes with Zuckerberg on food, by a famous Chicago chef. But there's more to being a tough critic than bile. In fact, our scene wouldn't be as good as it is without a certain amount of tough love. So I met with Zuckerberg at Egghead Diner in North Center. Yes, he can come out in daylight, chefs. To talk about what he doesn't like. But also, just as importantly, what he does like. And wants to see more of on our food scene. People like me who write about the food scene and occasionally talk about what we really think about the food have to be careful doing the latter because you can't kill all your access at once. Mm -hmm. You're not in that game, so you can say whatever you want. And I think the scene kind of lacks uh, too many people like that. (laughs) Maybe the only one. Um,
2: And that's not necessarily good for it. The truth is that I probably don't even think about it. It doesn't occur to me one way or the other whether I'm being mean or not mean. I think you hit on it when you started. I I don't write for restaurants, or I don't tweet for restaurants. I don't know who I really do it for. It's mostly for myself, my my own entertainment, um, but also for people who might be paying attention to my opinion, so I kind of just say whatever I think. Um, Definitely don't try to to be mean to anybody, I don't want to put anybody out of business, you know, I've been accused of that, you know, but it just doesn't even occur to me for the most part what the chef or the restaurant owner is going to think of what I said. I, it's not part of what crosses my mind when I'm thinking about what I'm going to tweet or what I'm going to put on a blog post or anything.
0: Well, let's talk about what your your background is, because you actually have restaurant experience, unlike me who did a year at McDonald's and that's <laughs> right. it. Right.
2: Right. Well, I mean, I, I uh, was one of those crazy people who, they say, uh, have visions uh, of being a chef, even though they have no idea what it would uh, really take. And I, I think that was true of me. So I, I was in management consulting for a bunch of years and decided I didn't really like that for, for a while. And so I decided to go to culinary school and uh, cook in restaurants because I love to cook for my friends, you know all the things that people say you're crazy if you do. Just because you love to cook for your friends doesn't mean you're gonna love being a chef but I, I did go to culinary school and I did cook in an Italian restaurant in New York and uh, all those people were right. I did hate it and I wasn't, and I wasn't cut out for it, uh, mostly hated the, the lifestyle. So I guess I have a combination of, of newfound respect for the people who can actually make a living out of that and do that for their career. Uh, but also a, a definite opinion that it is not me. Yeah. <laughs> that,
0: well, and also you have technical knowledge of it, which I think is deficient, and a lot of times yeah. in people who don't have any experience of it at all. And, you know, I, I I try to make up for that just by being as observant as I can, and it certainly improved my home cooking. But still, I'm you know, I'm sure I make
2: you know bonehead mistakes that make chefs you know smack their foreheads when they read me. So. Well, a lot of them do that in their restaurant kitchens too, to be honest, but <laughs> <laughs> probably I when I When I comment about Italian food in Chicago, that's an area where I'm coming from a little bit more of a background than another, than so, and I don't have a ton of experience, but there are just some things that happen in Italian restaurant kitchens here that are just egregiously bad, that are the kinds of things that should make you not feel embarrassed about whatever you're doing in your home kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> well, so describe that what what are the sins of Italian food that you see the, they mostly happen with pasta and, you know, pasta is critical to Italian Italian food and uh, I think most people have no idea what they're doing when they cook pasta there's a, an obsession now with uh, Handmade pasta everybody wants fresh pasta people are buying all this fancy equipment extruding their own their own pasta So I think one one of the areas where there's just a complete misunderstanding of pasta is the fact that when you go to italy A lot of pasta is dried and there's a reason for that. There are just certain Preparations where dried pasta is a lot better than than fresh pasta and so you need to get over that obsession with making everything fresh and extruding it. It's just not as good, no matter how, how good you might think you are at extruding it or how, how great the equipment you bought is. Sometimes using dried pasta is better. Um, so that's one thing that I just see that, that I think people have... It's almost like they've they found a hobby and they want to, you know, <laughs> use well, it also, and do it all the time.
0: Also with pasta, yeah. isn't it that you're... You're talking about something that cooks in two minutes versus something that cooks in eight with dried pasta, and that's really important for for a kitchen. So then, an expediency become, you know, gets repackaged as as this uh, artisanal improvement.
2: I, I guess there there is some service expediency, but. Uh... There's certainly a lot of time and effort that goes into making a fresh pasta that you would save if you uh, if you just bought a box of dried pasta. So <laughs> I, I'm not sure that that really explains the the decision that, that kitchens make to use fresh pasta for everything. So the the dried versus fresh thing is bad, but then there's the the choice of sauce with pasta shape, which is just one of the most fundamental things about cooking pasta. Well,
0: it's fairly scientific. It's like something
2: you can put in a chart and you use this with this. If you have even a a solid foundation of understanding or the willingness to just look it up, you will get it right. But almost no place gets it right. And uh, There's a, a dish that's been on menus for decades, and it's on the trendy Italian menus now. It's very simple, it's a orchetti with sausage and broccoli raw. And it's just, there's one fundamental thing about that dish. It's like the most popular Italian and Italian-American restaurant dish in the world. And the the thing that makes it work is you have crumbled sausage, which fits into those little cups that are part of the orchetti shape. But time after time, even otherwise seemingly good chefs, are using some kind of fancier sausage than just sort of regular crumbled Italian sausage. They slice it into discs or two-inch long pieces, so there's no way it fits into those little Orchetti cups. And it's just, to me, a complete lack of understanding of, of fundamentals of, of Italian food if you do that.
0: Well, and you went on a quest for that. Mm-hmm. You, were, you were, like, tweeting day after day about hunting for that dish.
2: I did, and I, I didn't find one. But, but did it right. They all did it wrong, and I <laughs> went everywhere. I went to old-school Italian-American joints, I went to the trendy, newer places. You know, a couple of people came close. Um, uh, Devonti had a pretty good example of it, but one of the reasons that it's worked is that they did use, use their own handmade orchetti, and they made them really large. Which uh, just kind of cheating, because just about anything fits in it then if they're really big, but, but that was decent. Instead of an ear, it's Kind of, yeah. Yeah, but uh, just about everywhere else, it was just horrible and kind of depressing that like, people just didn't understand what such a basic concept of that dish is.
0: let's look on the positive side when you find something you like you're a positive you're, mm-hmm. you're a cheerleader for it so Absolutely.
2: is there any Italian food that you want
0: to support <laughs> or only Chinese
2: <laughs> <laughs> Is there any Italian food uh, you know there is although to be honest it's not pasta I haven't found a place that that does pasta in a way that I think is right in Chicago outside of Chicago yes but uh, there's other Italian food I think there are a lot of places that are taking pizza really seriously and uh, I mean Italian style pizza you know the, the old one the sort of the, the father of uh, Neapolitan style pizza in Chicago is Bacchanopoli and they're still doing to me the, the best job in Chicago they're, that's a place that takes it really seriously doesn't doesn't mess around with it has has done their research and uh, keeps things simple and, and does it really well but I I think there are others that are, that are doing pizza well uh, in Chicago, and I, I certainly consider that Italian food, too. Other than that, you know, you're, you're going to make me sound like the person people think I am, and I tell you, I can't, I can't think of now one. You've praised the uh, Purple Pig. Yes. Yeah. I mean, not as an Italian restaurant. I, you know, right. There are some Italian-leaning dishes there, but I, I love the Purple Pig. Uh, and certainly some of the styles are, are Italian but I, I think more than Italian it's probably Greek flavors uh, that yeah. exist uh, at the Purple Pig but yeah I, I mean I think I think the cooking there is is fantastic and has been since they opened.
0: Well I think it's probably a place of benefit I didn't know this till I did Key Ingredient with Jimmy Bonos Jr. but the fact that they can't do pasta there basically I mean he had to like rig away to do pasta for the shoot um Was an interesting exercise in making them look at what other things you can do. You know, they they do more seafood. They do the charcuterie, which I've actually never been that fond of the charcuterie. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do great vegetable dishes. Oh yeah, and all of that I think, in some way, was forced by not being able to just fall back on the obvious thing for a menu that's at least partly Italian.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have a. A stuffed squid that it's just really simple it's a uh, big pieces of squid stuffed with prosciutto and breadcrumbs and there's really not much else to it but they just cook everything so perfectly in that in that dish. And to me it's one of the, the hallmarks that makes the place great
0: and it is funny too because it is one of the most chaotic kitchens certainly one of the most chaotic kitchens that you can see right, right. in front of you um, and to me, it kind of has the feel of those places that Anthony Bourdain gets to go to where it's on the beach and the guys, you know, making the fish that they just caught or whatever. Yeah. It I mean, matter. it's as, as close to that as you can get in an office tower, which I used to work in right. yeah, on <laughs> Michigan Avenue. Um, and God, if only that had existed when
2: I worked there. and you know, that, that area was such a... Yeah, you know, I thought when it opened that it would be the start of some kind of renaissance on Michigan Avenue. And there have been some new openings, but Michigan Avenue is still Michigan Avenue. <laughs> Michigan Avenue. <laughs> yeah. It hasn't yeah. started any kind of renaissance.
0: One that you, I know you love, Formentos.
2: Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to make me talk about this. All right, if you don't want to <laughs> no, I, I mean, you know, I, I think I I said a lot of it when I talked generally about Italian food earlier. I mean, I, to me, Formentos is. I can stop talking about it as an Italian restaurant because they don't even position themselves that way, so it's an Italian-American restaurant. But it is one of these examples of the antithesis of a chef-driven restaurant. It is a concept-driven restaurant. The owners decided, we want an Italian-American restaurant, for whatever reason. My guess is because we think it'll make a lot of money, mm-hmm. and that's fine.
0: Well, Randolph Street doesn't have anything for timid diners as such. Well, I mean, during the day it does it Little go. But, you know, if, you're, if your choices are like Ted's and you know, right, places right. like that, you know, Comfy Italian was a really smart move. Probably was.
2: But it's just, at least when I went there, it became pretty clear to me that you had a chef who didn't want to be cooking that. And I don't blame him, or I don't know who to blame, to be honest, but there was... Attempt or attempts at getting creative with that kind of food which just doesn't work for me with that kind of food you know, the, the, the worst example and this is just such a a simple thing it's a garlic bread you know, just make garlic bread just, it's good, right? slice some bread, put some butter and, and garlic on it and toast it for whatever reason you know, it, it, probably because if you're a chef you don't want to make garlic bread. You know? this is a, this, I didn't go to culinary school and build my whole career to make garlic bread, so I decided I have to do something different with this. And so instead of slicing the bread, they present this whole loaf of bread and sort of score it halfway uh, with a bunch of slices and then pour some kind of sauce over it, rendering it basically inedible you either need a knife and fork to eat it or you use your fingers which are now full of all this goo that they just poured over the thing and it just made me think that this is a restaurant that has a chef that doesn't want to be cooking here
0: well and I thought that was interesting because you know I went to a preview for it at the Bristol and I had two of the things that you had the garlic bread and the the Caesar salad and they were both just like simple and well executed and it was like, okay, good, better execution on Italian-American. I could buy that concept. And then it sounds like, like you say, like they felt they needed to get more creative. They needed to be flashier. And I don't think flashier has helped.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, the Caesar salad was another. There were no croutons. So they, Instead of croutons, it was, I, I don't know what it was. It seemed like sort of bread pudding. Somebody should ask them what it really was. I'm sure it wasn't pudding, but it was some kind of soft consistency bread-like substance. <laughs> and I don't know why they did that but I, I think it, it's probably my guess is, and I know nothing I'm, if somebody criticizes me for, for saying I know what the chef is thinking you know, I'll take that criticism, because I don't I have no idea what, what the chef there is thinking but I know what I might be thinking in that situation if I were the chef, which is I didn't get into this business to make garlic bread and Caesar salad so I'm going to put some kind of stamp on it and I think just the problem with those dishes is there is no stamp that works. And so you end up either doing things that don't work or you have a chef who's not happy being there. And so they move on and they do something else. And that's why these, these sort of concept-driven restaurants don't, don't work for me. All
0: right, Chicago's scene overall. How do you feel
2: about it? I don't want to sound like the person you said I was going to be. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, not that, uh, I'm not that high on it right now and it's my main reason for feeling that way is this what seems to be this migration towards everything being under a few restaurant group umbrellas I just don't like that movement you know they, these are good guys who actually have good restaurants you have know, the Oka group the, the guys from the Bristol um, Soda Cough. I'm not saying these guys don't have good restaurants they do but it all starts to feel a lot more homogenous. And I I think that's the way the scene is migrating a lot to to these big restaurant groups and and having almost all the new openings fall under one of them. See, I think that's
0: kind of cyclical, because a year ago, I really felt that's all we were getting. We were just getting their new Italian place and their new steak place and their new ramen place. And then we had these things open. We had Parachute, we had Ted Charcuterie, we had... A bunch, of, you know, the rattler. A bunch of these, you know, personal. Clearly, people making the food that they've been working toward making for mm-hmm. ten or fifteen years. Because I usually have had previous encounters with them and shot key ingredient with most of them or something. Our groups at least yeah. feel they have to be at a higher standard. They don't just open the same thing. They open the same thing as each
2: other a lot, <laughs> but right, right.
0: but not the same thing as themselves so much.
2: Yeah, I mean, to me that that is to some extent actually a detriment, that they see this need to open different places instead of the same, because it just sort of implies that the same people can cook all those different things, and that, you know, I don't buy it, I, I you know, when, uh, what was the, when Henri became a canto, you know, before, and they kept the same chef, right, and he was meant to cook French food his whole life. He was meant to cook French food. And then all of a sudden his whole life, he was meant to cook Italian food. And And he pulls out
0: Nana's meatballs.
2: Exactly. And I kind of feel that 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 keeps happening with these groups that do realize the need that you 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 can't just open the same place. But these chefs just move around. And, you know, all of a sudden, Stephanie was was born to cook Chinese food now, right? I, I mean, I... I don't know, but then you have places like Parachute, uh, which I love, that are standing on their own and, and really are run by the people who are cooking in the kitchen. Um, and to me, those, those kinds of restaurants not only does the food tend to be better, they just have a better feel when you walk into them. You, you, yeah, you know, and I think a better staying power. All these other places. The chefs just moved from one restaurant to the next, so how could there possibly be any real consistency, both in the menu and in the execution? I just got back from Hong Kong and spent eight days there. That sounds eight, eight like eight such, days a, such a Carson show
0: kind of thing. I just got back from Hong Kong. <laughs>
2: hey! You. you know, one of the things I, I said while I was there is that it made me appreciate how lucky we are to have uh, Chinatowns here in Chicago and elsewhere in in the U.S. But the reason I say that is the food I ate in Hong Kong was just really similar to the food I eat in Chinatown. And, you know, you can visit a foreign country by getting on on the L and uh, riding for 10 minutes. Um, I had dim sum at some top-rated places in Hong Kong and... Were they better than what I eat regularly at Kai and uh, other places in Chinatown? I, mean, I think maybe some dishes were, but for the most part, I felt like I was eating very similar food. And so, you know, to me, Chinatown is just a treasure. Of places like Kai, and I think there are others that that do dim sum really well and take it seriously.
0: Um, What's interesting because. When we went to Oaxaca over Christmas, um, I kind of came away feeling the same way. I mean, I loved the food. I felt like the concentration of really good things was higher. But I came back not feeling like Mexican food in Chicago was a Taco Bell cartoon of itself. I mean, I had really good things. And obviously, recent immigration, Mm -hmm. you know, people... People aren't sitting at desks thinking up how to make something that looks like Mexican food. They're making what
2: they were making a week before in Mexico. We sometimes don't realize how lucky we are that I mean, you have places that are as, as good as and feel like you've traveled across the world to, to eat food and they're here, they're here in town.
0: There was that, that story about the, uh, the guy who opened Chop Chop Chinaman you see this yeah 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 so it's a chinese guy who opens this place with what seems like a racist name although to me it's only slightly more so than hi ricky if several years ago that had like someone with the the umbrella like hat whatever that's called and mm-hmm. you know holding chopsticks or yeah. whatever i mean it's just the sort of cartoon iconography and so of course some white girl you know vandalizes the chinese guys Get a restaurant in the name of tolerance, and but you know, are we even going to be able to call it Chinatown in ten years? Is that is that going to be
2: too sensitive? Well, I mean, I don't know. You know, I started off by talking when you asked me what I like. It was Chinatown, but Yeah. yeah, the reason I like Chinatown is that that's a population that has, at least to some extent, made an intentional decision not to assimilate. You know, they're going to have Chinatown, and that's going to be a little slice of, of China. Uh, but I think that is not the way most cultures work. Most cultures do assimilate, and so you end up with um, a Chinese restaurant in uh, wherever that place is, in Boys Town or uh, Wigglyville, and you know, it's a whole different whole different game there. People lament the lack of, or the, the disappearance of French restaurants from Chicago and I think from the U.S. landscape in general but I, I don't think French cuisine has disappeared I, I think it's actually grown uh, you know, and I think in the last five years of the number of places where I can get a good croissant it's yeah. probably tripled and that's French food right and, yeah. um, and I think French, these sort of hardcore French restaurants are largely disappearing because we don't have as many first generation immigrants here but it's also true when you go to Paris. Yeah. There aren't a lot of French restaurants in Paris anymore. They, no, they, I remember
0: going there and, and you know, clearly the most popular thing to eat was suddenly paninis. Sure. You yeah. know, that welcome to Paris.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I think this is probably just a natural phenomenon. But for whatever reason, it, it hasn't happened to Chinese food right now. Yeah. You, know, the, you can still, in most major U.S. cities, find a Chinatown that is pretty hardcore
0: speaking of French you talked about going to a French restaurant. Yeah it was
2: interesting though I mean uh, everything I had read about it said it was a French restaurant and I called them to make sure I'd be able to get in and a very heavy French accent was talking to me on the phone. Um, They don't have a a published menu so I didn't really know what I was getting into other than I was going to this French restaurant that uh, some two Michelin Michelin-starred chef from Paris had opened in Hong Kong. and I got there and it still looked and sounded like a French restaurant, but then, you know, the food on the plate was uh, miso and uh, um, all kinds of seaweed. Uh, it, it was Japanese and, you know, international. I don't know what to call it. It was, it was fabulous, but it was just really interesting to be at this supposedly French restaurant in Hong Kong eating food that seemed more Japanese than anything else to me. And I think that really is a French restaurant now. That's the kind of restaurant you go to in Paris that, that people rave about.
0: Perfect meeting of the chef wanting to get away from making French food and make Asian things, and the Hong Kong people probably not wouldn't be lining
2: up for, you know, goose with heavy sauces or whatever. Probably not, although goose with heavy sauces... Is kind of quintessential Hong Kong food too. So,
0: <laughs> not cream-based sauce. Anymore. No, yeah. no.
2: Okay.
0: So, what else did you did you have in Hong Kong that
2: that you really liked? Um, street food. You know, there's all there's all kinds of street food in, in Hong Kong. Uh, probably the thing I remember most from from the trip was. There was a, a seafood stand to the left and to the right was a cook with a boiling pot of liquid taking stuff from the seafood stand and dunking it in the in the pot of liquid and, uh, and serving it on a stick. Um, I had some just incredibly fresh octopus that uh, had in this case been pre-cooked a little bit and uh, was just kind of sitting there out in the sun on a stick. You come to order it and, and, and uh, they dunk it in some intensely spiced boiling liquid, handed to you on the stick, and one dollar later, you're eating the best thing you've eaten in in a year. Um, That was terrific. And I think just in general, there was this obsession with freshness in in Hong Kong. Uh, There were just markets everywhere, street markets that are uh, literally twitching seafood and. Whole animals that are being butchered, you know, right there on the streets uh, for people to do their their evening shopping after work. It um, was just really fun to see that, and I think it's a it's a culture we don't have much of, of here. Yeah, I kind of uh, there is a lot of the aroma of animal fat walking the streets in, <laughs> in Hong Kong, and I kind of got sick of it the the combination of animal fat and uh, I think so. uh, <laughs> star anise. I think if I don't smell any any more star anise uh, for for a year, I'll be okay. It is just in the air <laughs> everywhere there, and I, I definitely got sick of that smell.
0: Speaking of food podcasts, there's another one that I didn't mention before because it's a very different format, and that's Car Con Carne, the barbecue podcast recorded in a car by Chicago radio veterans James Van Osdol and Mike Bratton. I was the backseat guest a few weeks ago, and we tried a barbecue place, Husky Hog Barbecue in Bridgeport, that I had never been to. But chatting with owner Joe Woodle before the show, I knew I wanted to talk to him more. And so I went back recently to talk Tennessee-style barbecue. He's from Nashville, or so I thought at first. Competition barbecue, the food truck life, and Tennessee versus Southside Chicago barbecue. His story begins when he was at home recuperating after carpal tunnel surgery, caused by long hours in an upscale kitchen.
3: So I was sitting at home... And uh, while I had my wrist surgeries, I couldn't do anything for like eight months. It was like six or eight months. And I saw I saw this show called Barbecue Pitmasters. So I watched that show, and then my wife come home and I recorded it and I showed her and I said, I-, I think I can beat those guys. I think I'm, I mean, those are just a bunch of crazy rednecks cooking barbecue. That shit can't be that hard. It can't be that, I said, and I got a culinary degree. I can, Ribs, that's easy. Shoulders, that's hell. How much is 30% fat? You can't mess up shoulders. And then we signed up for a competition in uh, Glen Ellen Backwood Barbecue Fest, and they only you only cook ribs of your choice, either spares or babies, and uh, chef's choice so i mean you could i mean people were doing sushi they were doing oysters but i just did chicken thighs just like i would in the real competition so i did chicken thighs and ribs chicken thighs was my chef's choice category because you know and i wanted to work on the timelines and stuff and it was very unorganized and uh and we were right in the middle of the pack we signed up i think the next year for six competitions but to practice I would take my paycheck from Home Depot and I would just buy meat and I traded in a a Jeep that I got as a graduation project from uh, Columbia College when I got my theater degree I traded in my Jeep for a smoker and F-250 to travel around with uh, our smoker to compete and so to practice we would go behind Home Depot's Uh, and we would sell box lunches. So we would get there at three o'clock, we would do it just like a competition. We would roll in, you know, the night before, we would brine all our stuff and inject it and have everything ready, then we'd roll up and we knew that people would start coming out at 11 o'clock, so we acted like that was the time that we had our first turn in. So we would, you know, we were cutting brisket to order right there on the smoker and we would do the chicken thighs, we would do shoulders. We would do everything. We would do every, just like a competition, until we sold out, you know. And man, we would be out there in the rain and just trying to hustle. I was just hoping to get my money back from my paycheck. <laughs> All
0: right, now I want to back up on something. <laughs> right. Right. You said theater degree. Yeah. Tell me that story. So, where, where are you from originally? Well, uh, most
3: people don't know this. Uh, I was born in New Jersey, in Newark. Uh, I lived there till I was like three or four. And my mom moved us to Nashville, okay. so uh, I grew up in Nashville, and I always just say I'm from the South. Most people don't even—I don't even think it's Jersey—is my home. Tennessee is home to me. If I'm gonna go home, I'm going to Tennessee. So I didn't start professionally cooking until I was like 26 or 27, you know, goofing around. So when I moved to Chicago, I came here to do stand-up comedy, but. I found out I wasn't funny, and uh, and but it was really it was it was I did a lot of I did stand up and I did Second City and I did IO and I was in a bunch of improv groups and while I was doing that, uh, I kind of real I really did enjoy it. I really do love inner I think entertaining is is awesome. To be on stage, it's like a rush. It's this nervous energy. How to take that nervous energy and use it? Same thing with competing in barbecue. It's the same. Man, when turn-in is, it's it's that same nervous feeling you get as you would before you walk out on stage. It's the same feeling you get in your gut. And so
0: I enjoy, I get off on that. So tell me about your uh, your style of barbecue. So you've got, you do, I'm looking at the menu here, pulled pork, brisket, and chicken are the main thing, so you've got lots of other things on the menu. Um, Where'd you learn the different styles, or what do you think you're sort of inspired the
3: chicken by? I got this chicken. I've had all of them. Man, it's yeah. had this one day I the chicken the barbecue is I the chicken. so diverse it's in America, and it's, I it it's right beautiful. There. I, <laughs> I, I like my stuff a little sweeter. I'm I'm definitely a sweeter chef. I like the sweetness. I'm really into sugars. I really I, my stuff is usually sweeter than anybody else's. Uh, so I guess t- but that's the style that I grew up with in Tennessee. Like man, like when I ate barbecue a lot in the South, it was due to uh, they cooked it at grocery stores. You would go to the grocery store and there would be a guy out there with uh, an old propane tank. And he would have ham hocks on their shoulders and you would just buy the whole smoked shoulder or the ham hocks or brisket wasn't really big it was mainly pork they'd have some ribs on there uh but you went to the grocery store and you bought that just from the guy smoking in the in the parking lot and then there would always be the hole in the wall uh and just you'd go to your neighbor's house and they'd always have the smoker going because we burned wood for heat, so we always had an ample amount of wood, and people just cooked with it as well. And so we had all <laughs> my neighbors where I grew up in Smithville, and uh, those guys did it different than the guys in Nashville at the grocery store. Uh, the the Meat and 3 stores that I grew up with were, you know, those guys did different barbecue each. But in Tennessee, the main thing was was the proteins were not sauced. They were just, the meat was just by itself and then you always had squirt bottles and stuff that you would sauce yourself. When I moved to Chicago, I tried a lot, a lot of different barbecue places and I think Chicago is a beautiful barbecue market. The problem is, is they wanna eat rib tips and hot links which is totally fine, which is totally, but I, I've never cook. I know how to cook rib tips. I know how to cook and make hot links. I totally know how to do all that. I don't enjoy, I don't, I don't personally enjoy rib tips. So the way that I cook it is uh, the way I did it in Tennessee, the way that I ate it growing up. But when I came here and I served people the dry meat, or if somebody took a, a half a pound of pulled pork home and I didn't put sauce on it, people would call me and complain they would there's no sauce on this we you didn't you didn't say you wanted sauce i thought you just wanted it you know the way that i ate it so and then i started putting a little sauce i had to start putting a little sauce on it because i was getting every third order was i was getting a call back or people were complaining that it didn't have any sauce on it so i had to start putting sauce on it for the chicago market you can still get it dry we still when we cook our ribs on uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we leave them dry. They're dry until you tell me you. So we don't bake the sauce on there. You know, we just put the sauce on loose. So when you come in and order ribs, we say, you want them dry or wet? And then if you want them wet, do you want it sweet or hot? So what we did is we tried to. I understand what market I'm in, and I'm trying to you know teach people the difference of barbecue but it's still really tough in Chicago because every day I'll have 10 people come in the door and ask for rip tips and I totally understand uh, I have traveled to the Carolinas to Virginia to Kentucky to Kansas City to Texas to Louisiana to Florida barbecue I've tried I mean I take two vacations a year One is a a vacation for barbecue, and then another vacation is for me. So I take two weeks off a year, and this year we went to Austin, Texas, because uh, apparently if you're from Texas, uh, you're the only one that knows about barbecue. (laughs) Because people from Texas, I love them to death. They come in here, and they think it's funny when they say, I want uh, half fatty, half lean. I know exactly what you're asking for. I know exactly what it is, but we don't. I don't cut it that way. I do burn ins or the brisket slices. And so the boys from Texas, they don't know the difference. They only know lean or fatty. And then when you say, well, I can give you some slices, and then I can give you some burn ends, and then I like it. They tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Well, I do know, and I'm just you don't. You're not. I can give you the fatty ends. You just got to order it in burn ends. So. I guess I just cook it, I cook to the taste that I guess as a kid or when I was running around uh, Tennessee, when I would go eat barbecue, uh, when I take a bite of it, I'll change it to what I grew up with. That's how, I'm not changing it to anything. My my cooks, I tell them, like, listen, it needs more of this, it needs more of that. Because all I'm trying to do is do a flashback of my childhood or me being at the grocery store you know, seeing the smoker. I don't eat much barbecue anymore, but uh I, I, love, think, I love I love that's an occupational condition. <laughs> I but I every when I open up the smoker in the morning on any of my rigs or any of my smokers, to me to me that's the best smell. I mean, man, I love the smell of a smoker. I really love the burning of the wood. Uh, and I love to see people happy eating the stuff, you know. And I'm glad, I'm glad that the old school uh, technique of barbecue is still around and people are enjoying it. But people, you know, we get criticized, a lot of barbecue places get criticized on how expensive we are. Bar- barbecue is expensive. I mean, you just look at our shoulder recipe. It's a, it's a two and a half day process of injections, dry rubs, brines. Uh, 10 to 12 hours smoke time, and then you got cool down time, and then you have to shred it. I wish we could do it. I wish we could do it cheaper, but I mean, it's an expensive. You know, the meats are inexpensive. The labor is what kills us. You know, and and we could we could do shortcuts. We I know all the shortcuts. I know how to I know how to put a smoke ring on something and cook it in the oven. I know I know how to do that, but I don't. We don't do it, you know. It's just it's just not right. We just want to do it right.
0: Well, that's it for episode 17 and the whole damn thing, I guess. But like I say, watch for future stuff from me that may include audio. I'm always trying new things and trying to find more ways to tell good food stories in this great food city. As somebody said, Chicago is a city with a sky full of bacon. Thanks to everyone who's ever been part of Airwaves Full of Bacon including the guests on this show, Harry Carr, Ken Zuckerberg, Egghead Diner, and Joe Woodle of Husky Hog Barbecue. And big thanks to Kevin McLeod, whose music did so much to set the audio scenes I was trying to capture. You'll find links and everything, not to mention the full archive, at skyfullofbacon.com. Thanks for listening.
2: Every July,
0: peas grow there. Do you really mean that?